the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts and Merry Podmas to you all for the fourth time. This week we're returning to the Look Who's Talking universe for the third and last time. Is it going to be pedigree chums or is it going to be a shaggy dog story? It's Look Who's Talking now. And as we said previously, it's a Merry Podmas to one and all. For the fourth time, we're delving into seasonal movies. And we've got a doozy this week. It's 1993's Look Who's Talking Now, directed by Tom Ropolevsky. But if you are from the UK, you would not have seen this film in 1993, as it was released in the May of 1994 over here. So trying to get you into that Christmas spirit a little early, a bit premature. I don't know why anybody would want to watch this movie in May, to be honest. But there we go. So look who's talking now. Here is a synopsis by the man, the one, the only, Mr. Nick Briganis. Yay. With Christmas just around the corner, Mikey and Julie both want a dog, as Molly finds herself without a job. Now... James becomes the family's breadwinner, working as a private pilot for the glamorous and seductive cosmetic tycoon Samantha. However, as he spends more and more time with her, his marriage will likely be put to the test. This time, it's Mikey's shaggy mongrel rocks and Judy's sophisticated poodle Daphne who do the talking. Well, in the meantime, jealousy gets the best of Molly. Will the Ubriocos survive Christmas? And to be honest, I don't care if they survive Christmas by this point. I have to say... I loved Look Who's Talking Now when I first saw it, probably about seven years old. I don't think this film was particularly appropriate for that age group. But either way, I've been a huge fan of this series of films since I was quite young. And re-watching this movie was utterly childhood ruining. It is terrible. I never thought I'd hear myself say this, but it is actually worse than Look Who's Talking To. My life has just been changed. It's not a good movie. It's a mess of a movie. It doesn't really know what it's trying to achieve because on one hand, it is capitalising on the cute dog movie craze of the 90s. If you cast your minds back to that era, there was a slew of films such as Beethoven, Shiloh. There was so many of them. So I think on one hand, it wants to to capitalise on that by using the Look Who's Talking format because the children are grown up and they can speak for themselves now. And by including the dogs instead, it just takes away from what this whole franchise was all about at the beginning because the reason it was funny was because it was the commentary from the babies. But now that's taken away. The kids are quite dull in it. It just doesn't work. 
and then it's just slapped into a Christmas scenario about two thirds of the way in. It's just a, a very odd combination. And of course, we haven't got Amy Heckling back as director. So I think the filmmakers are just trying to emulate her style, but you can tell it's not quite her style this time around. Yeah, all of that. And to use a quintessentially British phrase, this is dog shit. This is absolute dog shit from start to finish. I'm so over this series now. And like you, I don't remember it being this terrible when I watched it years ago. And some people online said that after Look Who's Talking To, this was a return to form. Really? A return to form? This is dreadful in every single department. I thought Look Who's Talking To was bad, but Look Who's Talking To, most of that stuff is forgiven now after watching this. And with the raft of talent on display here, Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton voicing the dogs, how can they not be funny? Well, this movie manages to achieve that. Danny DeVito is hilarious in just about everything, apart from this. This has just got an unpleasant streak running through it. And again, third time in a row, we get to see a title sequence with jizz. I am so sick of seeing jizz, animated jizz, in this movie going down towards an egg. It's dog jizz this time, which is the, the lowest point of the series. But they just wanted to mimic the title sequence of the other two movies. Yes, I get it. But again... The way that the dog gets pregnant is quite unpleasant and slightly aggressive. And it's got this weird undertone of treating women like shit, really. The female characters are not really that well drawn. Kirstie Alley doesn't get a whole lot to do this time. They seem to spend a lot of the time having a joke at her expense that she can't find a proper job. Lizette Anthony's character, who is this spoiled man-eater she's got a thankless task in this movie where she's just throwing herself at John Travolta all the time. Lisa Anthony's a pretty good actress and she made some pretty good stuff. Here she's just cut adrift in a sea of well not even mediocrity crap basically. I just don't get where this film is coming from and for a movie that's kind of aimed at families it's got some thoroughly inappropriate humour in it. Chiefly, the knock-knock joke, which I completely forgot about, where Julie is telling a knock-knock joke and it doesn't get finished, but the whole premise of it is knock-knock, who's there? Transsexual. What? Where the fuck did that come from? How's that in the movie? Is this... A subject for humour? Is this a subject for humour in a family movie? I just sat there thinking, what, did I just hear that? Anyway, I rewound it and I thought, yes, I did just hear that. Knock, knock, who's that transsexual? I mean, for fuck's sake, is this where we are in this movie? I'm actually crying right now. Yeah, I was exactly the same as you to the point where I came to it in the film. I messaged you straight away to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> I honestly don't understand that joke, why that word is meant to be seen as hilarious coming out of the mouth of a child. 
it doesn't go anywhere. Everyone looks a bit shocked, but they don't explain what a transsexual means to the child. I, d I just don't know. It seems so out of place. And again, I don't remember that. Now, I also suspect with this version of Look Who's Talking Now is that when I watched it as a child, it was edited for TV. So I'm assuming quite a few things were cut out because there was definitely moments in it that I remember that must have gone over my head as a child or just weren't there. I don't really remember. But it's, a, it's an odd mesh of a film. And again, first and foremost, I'm a bit clueless as to why they decided to make a third Look Who's Talking in the first place, because as we've discussed, the sequel absolutely tanked at the box office. Therefore, I don't know what the need for it was. It's a, it's a very, very strange thing. And then there's the whole surreal sequences. Now, obviously, the first two movies are peppered with these dream sequences or sort of inner thoughts moments and then it just kind of illustrates that in a surreal and out there way this makes attempts at that we've got the basketball scene where judy is imagining herself challenging is it charles barkley it I is believe? charles barkley yes yeah challenging him to a basketball match and flying in the air and then of course the main one is a very contrived sequence where both um molly and james are feeling very insecure both simultaneously dream that he's having an affair with Samantha and she's having an affair with Albert. We get a very brief random cameo from George Segal that is just a waste of time. If they were going to bring him back to the movie, at least bring him back for some actual conflict and drama, that would have put closure on it from the first movie, even though they do kind of give it closure in the first movie anyway, so I'm not really sure if bringing him back was necessary. It's a very weird dream sequence. And then they realise that they're both dreaming at the same time and in each other's dreams and can do whatever they want in the dreams. So Kirsty Alley then blows Samantha away and her breast implants fall out on the floor. Kids movie. Is this a kids movie? It's rated 12. I did check this on the BBFC. It is rated 12. But the fact that it's got children and dogs in it, but this quite inappropriate adult humour... Who was this targeted at? Was it meant for families to watch together? Was it a nice family film or was this made for adults? But I, I honestly don't think adults are really going to appreciate a dog film. Probably not, no. Because the dog sequences are clearly aimed at kids. Except for the fact that some of the dialogue that the dogs have is quite inappropriate as well. Because at one point, Rox, the dog voiced by Danny DeVita, is going on about a female dog that had a face like a Mack truck. I mean, come on. Is this where we are with this movie? Just having a go at the way that women look, specifically women dogs, but it's still quite offensive, really, in the way that it does treat its female characters. I did actually like the fact that the dream sequences crossed over into each other. That's a little bit more imaginative than this movie deserves. But even then, they do nothing with that. It's just a peg on which telling a really weak joke. There's just so much wrong with this movie. There's even things wrong with the accents in this movie. There's a Scottish dog in the dog pound. It is the worst Scottish accent I have ever heard in any movie, ever. He says something like, oh, I'm going to try and attempt how bad the accent is as well. It says something like, don't let them see your fear, laddie. Don't give the heartless bastard the satisfaction. And that's a better accent than the one that they use in the movie. 
It's terrible. <laughs> I just couldn't believe how much crap is in this movie. And just when I thought it was going to get better, I thought, surely this movie cannot get any worse than it does. It completely confounds me by getting far worse as it goes along. Just dragging anything into the mix, like a wolf attack. There's this drive out into the middle of nowhere, which comes almost out of nowhere because John Travolta is stuck in this snowy waste with the predatory Samantha and Molly decides to pack up the kids in the car and drive out to save the day and to bring Christmas to daddy. It's just a mishmash of stuff that's chucked in just for the sake of like, right, what can we do next? We haven't really got a story in here. What can we do next? Oh, let's just have him trapped in this cabin with this woman who is supposed to be madly in love with him and he's going to destroy his marriage. But it's made clear halfway through the movie that it's not going to destroy his marriage because they're in love with each other and they don't cheat on each other. So there's no jeopardy there. Oh, God, it's just... I'm not even going to say it's a frustrating movie because after about 45, 50 minutes, I thought, well, I've got to watch the rest of it because clearly I need to get to the end of it for the purposes of the podcast. But by that time, I was just thinking, oh, just fuck this movie. I just don't care. Don't care about anybody in it. I don't care how it finishes. I just do not care. (laughs) So I want to talk about the Samantha character because I feel that she is just in place to be a villain with no motivation, no character development. She is literally just there to seduce John Travolta. We don't actually get an ounce of understanding why she's obsessed with him because other than him being John Travolta and being an attractive man, the character is a happily married father of two. What is her gain? We d- and Then it ends up in a very weird hostage situation almost. How she cuts the phone lines, she's trying to trap him in this cabin and trying to seduce him with some cringy attempts at slow dancing. It is painful to watch, but again, upon rewatching, as you say, the female characters are poorly written. I suppose that's even an understatement. It's atrociously written, and I, I just don't understand why they're portraying this professional, hard-working career woman as this complete villain. It's it's a very very strange. It's like from the off, as soon as we meet her, her game plan is to seduce John Travolta and take him away from his family. Like, why is she doing that? We just don't understand. There's no explanation for it. Yeah, it's just weird. It's almost like the movie is terrified of successful women, which probably says a lot about the people who wrote it. I'm not saying what, but you can probably guess. It's just... A really depressing watch, this, because it's not funny. It's not interesting. The sequences with the dogs are not brilliantly shot. Yeah, it's got that. Attempts to try and capture the scenes from the first two where you've got the kids talking to each other, but it's not really the same. And the subplot with the dogs isn't really taken anywhere. Yeah, Rox is a bit disobedient and he gets into a bit of trouble but you never feel that he's going to end up out in the streets again even though the movie bends over backwards to make you think that Kirstie Alley's character is going to kick him out it's never going to happen in this movie and there's lots and lots of sequences where the characters are running about to jaunty music 
and things are getting spilled or broken or chucked about or falling off shelves and stuff. It's just really tired, even after the first two. I mean, the first two didn't fall back on the stuff that this movie falls back on. It's just a real waste of time, this movie. I went into it thinking, you know what? This might actually pull something out of the bag and I might enjoy it. No, out of all the stuff that we've had to sit through for this podcast, this is down near the bottom of the list. I fucking hated this movie. And I didn't want to hate it. And I don't take any pleasure in saying that I hated this movie. But I did. It just left me feeling really cold. I never want to come out of a movie feeling like that. And this just made me angry. It does nothing throughout its running time. It's just ticking boxes and getting to certain points in the plot so that it can get to the next point in the plot. And it's like, well, have we done this? Yes, we have. Have we done this now? Yes, we have. Right, we're near the end now. We need some kind of jeopardy. We'll just chuck something in. It's such a lazy fucking movie, this. And you're right about the hostage situation at the end. It's just ridiculous. The fact that she unplugs the phone line to keep him there. But what what is her end game? Because like he's, he's going to find out. So there doesn't seem to be any motivation behind uh, wooing of John Travolta, knowing that she probably can't get him. Now, I was kind of hoping that it might go the way of audition, where suddenly she's got him tied up to a chair and she's cutting his foot off with a piano wire. But it's a 12-rated movie. So, so if you haven't seen Audition, I've just fucked Audition up for you. I'm really sorry about that. This is what it drove me to. I was thinking, you know, I need some piano wire-related violence for me to get back on board with this movie. <laughs> oh, it was really that bad. <laughs> As I said, for me, it's a very weird feeling because I approached this thinking, oh, it's going to be a bit of nostalgia for me. I'm going to enjoy it for what it is, even though it might not land the same. But I was stunned how bad this movie is. As said, the kids become secondary to it. I mean, they are obviously a huge part of the Look Who's Talking franchise, but there's just nothing much you can really say about them because they're sidelined for all this domestic drama and then this random dog stuff. The plot line for Mikey, though, is he discovers that a store Santa is not the real Santa because he sees him taking his beard off and aggressively shouting down the phone at somebody. And then he loses all his faith in Christmas magic. So the family are then trying to restore his belief in Christmas. And that's there. And then it goes nowhere. And then it comes back at the end. It's like no real build up to it. It just happens. And then we move on to something else. And on the subject of this plot line, we have to talk about the chipmunk scene. Oh, God. (sighs) Yeah. So when Mikey is sulking in his room, the family decide to cheer him up. So because it's the 90s, of course, John Travolta plays a cassette tape, which has a chipmunk Christmas song, and the three of them decide to mime to it. It's very cringeworthy. I was literally sitting with my face in my hands, to be honest, throughout this whole movie. I just genuinely couldn't believe what I was sitting through. I just don't understand how child me could have had so much affection for this film. I guess it was probably just familiar characters and dogs. I get there's, there's got to be something in there to appeal for children, but it's not really a children's movie. It's it's a, it's an odd mismatch of 
I can't even I can't even explain it. I don't even know if this is a drama, a comedy, a romance, what it's trying to achieve. Because as you say, there's no real peril because we're rooting for these characters. We know that they're endgame. We know that nothing is going to separate them again. And we had all the pilot stuff in the second one, the whole tension with that, but it's like turned up a notch in this one. And then of course, there's a lot of characters that don't return as well. So Molly's best friend, played by Twink Kaplan, she refused to return to it. And then also the brother character who was a terrible character anyway <laughs> in the second one, he decided not to return either. I couldn't find much information on why Amy Heckling didn't direct this one. I'm assuming because she always just wanted it to be a standalone movie, she probably thought, yeah, I'm not doing this again. This is just a waste of time. She is an executive producer on it, I believe, but so I don't know how much input she had into this film. Because as I say, it feels like they are trying to emulate her style from the first two films, but not quite getting it right. So you can see it's like a bit of a copycat, but doesn't have the same effect. So yeah, it's, um, it wasn't a fun viewing experience. And I'm sad because I was ex literally expecting a feel-good family comedy. I was expecting to revisit my childhood and have a good time. And I was going to come back with a really happy, positive review. But this, this is just not the one. I'm sorry. Yeah, we ended up with a ho-ho dog's dinner. It's just a complete mess. It's an absolute mess. And I have no idea what the intent behind it was. It's just a series of sequences slapped together. And I understand that if you've got John Travolta in a movie, he's a talented performer. You want to hear him sing. You want to see him dance. So they try to crowbar some of that in. But even that feels tired this time. And that chipmunk number, basically, it felt like it went on forever. I know it doesn't. It's like a minute and a half or something, this chipmunk number. It's very short. But even by about 20, 30 seconds of that, my internal monologue was like, oh, fuck off with this song. It's so weak. They're just trying in any way they possibly can to wring laughs out of a script that just isn't funny in the slightest. And just when you think you've escaped the movie, we have to cover this. The end credits with Geordie, French singing star, with It's Christmas, Say Noel. By this point, you are literally feeling like, what the fuck have I just sat through and what the fuck is this? For some reason, they decided to tie in this French kid's Christmas number with Look Who's Talking Now. Now, I can't really find a connection between this, but my inner thoughts are just telling me because this is a child singer who I think um, burst onto the scene with a song called It's Tough to Be a Baby. And yeah. Darren can tell you the French title. Apparently, the title is something like Do Do Etre Bebe. <laughs> there we go. And because Look Who's Talking is famed for being a baby film. Maybe that was the connection. That's why they decided to bring this in. And then it's obviously a festive number. And we have Georgie just appearing for Mikey and Julie and James and Molly are in bed and then they get up and then it's like everything comes to life, like dolls come to life and they're all dancing around a Christmas tree. If you don't want to sit through the whole movie but you are curious to watch this, you can find it on YouTube. It is exceptionally poor quality, which I think just makes it. Yeah, thoughts on this, Darren? Well, at the end of a fairly tedious 
90 minutes of this. To have this on the end was just the final insult. If you do just see this music video in isolation, you will think you have taken drugs. It's bizarre. It's this tiny French helium-voiced singing star who sings and raps this Christmas song. It's beyond odd. If you watch it, you will just think, is this what passed for musical entertainment in the 90s? I can assure you it didn't. It was probably just as fucking bizarre in the 90s as it is now. If you look at it, you'll just think, what is going on here? Who in their right mind thought this was a good idea? Well, to be perfectly honest, lots of people probably did think it was a good idea because he was number one in France when he was four. And as we were talking offline, I just don't get the French. They've got a beautiful culture. They have really high-minded art movies. The country's exceptional. The cuisine is amazing. And then a four-year-old kid goes to the top of their charts. What's going on, France? Please explain. It's very random. And I've only heard of Geordie because of this film, as probably many of us in the UK have. It's incredibly bizarre. And the song is such an earworm. Like, it's still playing in my fucking head, guys. It's still (laughs) playing in my head. It's been playing in my head since I finished the movie. However, I have got a story for you. In my hand, you cannot see it. Darren can see it because I'm holding it up. But I'm going to describe this to you. So about 10 or so years ago, I decided to purchase all my favourite childhood movies on DVD because I had them all on video, typically video recordings off the telly. And I just wanted to have physical copies of these films. So if I ever fancied watching them, they were just there and accessible to me. Of course, I buy a three-film box set of the Look Who's Talking trilogy. No judgment. I loved these films growing up. Not ashamed to say so. I'm ashamed now after rewatching, but I've got this Sony Pictures Home Entertainment DVD that was released in 2009. So I've got through the 90 minutes of the movie. I am bracing myself for Geordie. The credits roll. We have black credits and we have a rendition of Sleigh Ride playing. No Geordie, no post-credit clips. No music video. So I can imagine if anybody who had watched the film in the 90s and it was a beloved childhood film and remember the Geordie song and the music video at the end, say had come to this box set and watched this and there's no Geordie. And say, for example, it wasn't available on any other version or on YouTube. You might have considered this to be a Mandela effect. It's definitely not a Mandela effect. I'm just assuming Sony did not have the rights to play that song on the end of the credits. It happens a lot with films and TV shows that they lose their music rights, so they have to stick something else on instead. But yeah, I was a little bit surprised because I was bracing myself for it. So therefore, I did have to go onto YouTube for the purpose of this podcast after watching the film to sit through it all. Because at first I was confused. I thought, oh, maybe they had Sleigh Ride first and then it plays at the end. But I was pretty confident that It's Christmas Say Noel is the song that plays straight after the movie ends. It was a very bizarre experience on top of a incredibly life-changing and bizarre experience having to revisit this film. <laughs> I rented it from Amazon Prime, so I did get the full Geordie effect on the end of it. To the makers of Look Who's Talking Now, I want my £3.49 back because 
it was a complete and utter waste of money. I'm sorry to have to say this. I could have rented something else with that money. I could have given it to charity. I could have bought something far more useful with that £3.49. And now I'm really, really annoyed that I sunk my money into such a pile of arse. But you pays your money, you takes your choice. And I made a very bad choice this time. Enough of me griping about this movie because I just could go on all night about how terrible it is. I'm sure that IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes have opinions on this movie. They certainly do. And just a quick one before I get into those. This film was a box office bomb. It earned just over $10 million against a $22 million budget. And it was the lowest grossing film of the series. So no wonder they decided to stop at this point. Interestingly, in the US, it opened the same week as The Nightmare Before Christmas, which <laughs> I did not realise. And I'm thinking, yeah, I can see why people would definitely prefer to see The Nightmare Before Christmas over this, because that movie is just iconic and it never gets old. And it's incredible. Maybe we'll do it one day. We'll talk about it one day. But I'm literally shook that it actually went up against that. So, ratings. Brace yourselves, guys. IMDb have given it a 4.4 out of 10. That's generous. That's very generous. Yeah. 29% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 0% tomato meat. Yes, well done, critics. We, we have a it go at the critics, like, yeah. We, yeah. We, do, we do have a go at the critics on this quite a lot for their scores, but they're spot on with this one. I don't believe that there's any merit in this movie. The critics have got it right this time. The audience, maybe not so much. I guess if you're nostalgic for it and you've got a very high tolerance for shit, then you probably will get something out of this. I was just over this about halfway into it and never really got back to it. And I did try my best, but it just didn't sufficiently engage me, certainly in the second half. It's dubious treatment of its female characters was the final nail in the coffin for me. It wasn't funny, and it just seems to think that women are just out there to be made fun of or be predatory towards decent family guys like John Travolta. I'm just over it, so in summary, fuck you, look who's talking now, fuck you and the dog you rode in on. So I actually did go back and watch Siskel and Ebert's review of it, which is on YouTube, and they really slated it. A few years ago, I would have probably been like, oh, why are they saying it's that bad? It's really not that bad. It's a really cute film. It's not even entertainingly shit. You know, there's some bad movies that you can get something out of. This this just did not entertain in any way. And I feel sad saying this when you've got John Travolta and Kirstie Alley back, who have incredible chemistry in the first two films, particularly the first one. But I think they're just going through the motions in this. I'm not really sure why they agreed to do it, whether it was contractual or they didn't have much going on at the time. Obviously, John Travolta fared better after this because Quentin Tarantino came knocking. He got Pulp Fiction. He got to move on from the shit show, but it, it's, it, it's utterly mind-blowing how terrible it is. And it's going to take me a while to get over this one. I mean, we definitely don't have much Christmas spirit uh, in this episode, sadly. And I think out of the movies we've covered so far, this has definitely been the worst 
can't disagree with that at all. My suggestion is it's getting towards Christmas now, so put Die Hard on. Yeah. And if you got through this episode and you want to cleanse your mind of this shit, go and listen to our Die Hard episode. And even listen to our whole series talking Die Hard because we had a good time mostly with those. Yeah, we had a much after, after number three. Yeah, we had a much better even after number three, <laughs> we had a much better time with Die Hard than we did with this movie. <laughs> I'm I, I feel that I've purged some of my anger now with this podcast, but I still have some residual anger left over, so I'm just going to go outside and scream into the night now. And I always thought to myself, oh, it'd be really great if they did make another Look Who's Talking film. I was thinking the third one was so good. Why didn't they make another one? And now as an adult, I completely understand why. And I don't blame the filmmakers or any studio touching this franchise with a barge pole again. Yeah, in one way, it would be nice to see some of the characters back. But... We'll leave it in the 90s where it belongs and never speak of it again. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 88 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy our content and want to check us out on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Just one episode left in our seasonal miniseries and we're heading towards the new year. So what better way than to usher in 2023 with another New Year's horror film? We're not going to do New Year's Evil again as much as I would like to do it. What we are going to cover is British director Norman J. Warren's Bloody New Year. This is a first time viewing for me. I've seen in Seminoid. I think that's as far as my knowledge of Norman J. Warren's films extends. I had a good time with New Year's Evil last year, so hopefully I'll have just as good a party with this one, but we will see. So, until then, stay safe, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas, everyone, and thank you so much for listening, for all your support, for all your comments and likes and shares and all that cool stuff. Have a good one. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.